Welcome to episode seven of the Different Doctor, Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story based on Doctor Order and dissect it like the beasts that we are. I'm Mo from France and to my west, it's the ever delicious Dr. L. How you doing, Doc? I've been on a tiny bit of a downer since mm. the last episode. Um, I thought it was going to be great amounts of fun putting the boot into a story that is nigh on universally hated, um, and I hate as well. And I thought I could go in for a bit of shameless puppy kicking, and it didn't make me feel good about myself. Um, I really don't enjoy not enjoying things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's hardened my resolve in a way to um, to push ahead with the, the the frame of mind I wanted to get into for this this episode, and we'll we'll see how that works out later on. How about you? Oh, well, I, I didn't. I didn't feel too bad after the twin dilemma because you know I think sometimes you know sometimes a puppy just needs a good kicking. Um, I felt much much worse after Castrovalva, really. That, that that one kind of made me didn't make me feel a, a, a bit low. So I, I do understand what you mean. Um, I'm feeling very very tired actually today, Doc. I must confess, I didn't have I didn't have chance to have my afternoon nap today. I do like a nap. In the afternoon, and I just I, I didn't have the. Have you have you reached that age, Doc, or not? Um, I haven't, but I routinely get very tired in the afternoon um, as winter draws to a close. I I, I feel like I'm uh, I feel like I'm scraping the bottom of a barrel um, in terms of physical energy and emotional energy. And after the winter, um, I want to see some sunlight. Mm. Um, I I want to I want to smell growing things in the air. Yeah, I mean, um, as a self-employed person, kind of working from home, I do have the great privilege of kind of being able to set my own schedule. And so normally I do manage to kind of program in like a little hour's gap or something. So I get my head down for 40 minutes or something. And that just seems to recharge the batteries. But just today, it was, not, I was just teaching nonstop. So it just wasn't possible. I find if I do so much as like shut my eyes or even take a breather or something in, in, in the afternoon, I have real trouble getting to sleep in the evening. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I, I really, really do not want the insomnia back. So no. um, I would rather sort of do whatever it takes just to get through until, until sleepy time, until about one. Um, what's what's, your, what's your poison they, of choice, Doc, when, you, when you're feeling knackered? What, are you a caffeine fiend or what do you do? I am, yes. Mm. Um, gallons and gallons of coffee. Yeah. Um, after experimenting, after experimenting with expensive coffee and very expensive coffee, um, I've discovered that. Um, well, um, if I were to say to you, no frills coffee, <laughs> um, you would know exactly what I meant, wouldn't you? Um, those cheapo coffees always no have. Those cheapo coffees always have the flavour of chicory to my tongue, to my palate, and I'm, I'm just not a fan of that. I spent so long working on so many building sites and in so many factories um, when I was younger, um, where the coffee was inevitably dreadful, yeah. but it was really something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't find that taste abhorrent at all. Um, there's there's something about that um, cheap coffee taste and aftertaste, and the vague sort of snail-like effluvium it leaves on your tongue afterwards. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, I, 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 I'm a bit of a coffee snob. I do like a good coffee. 
you know, I suppose, you know, six years in France kind of progr- program me for that. Because if the one thing the Frenchies can do, they can make fucking damn fine coffee. Um, and, you know, these days, I suppose, you know, these days I kind of consider a cup of gold blend to be kind of scraping the bo- bottom of the barrel. But, 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 but it's perfectly fine, you know. Evidently, my barrel goes a lot deeper than yours. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, it's it's got far more scrapings in it, um, and yeah, so um, sort of some some vaguely brown powder uh, in a glass jar uh, with the paper la- with a paper label stuck on the side that says coffee with one F's and three got, E's or something. Well, don't they normally say coffee solubles? <laughs> and then, you, then you know you're in the cheapo oil. Um, I think um, soluble coffee flavored granules are the, uh, the lowest <laughs> grit, actually. Soluble coffee flavored grit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Doc, um, come on. Shall we, um, shall we crack into the episode? What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to part one of the show, which we call TARDIS Talk. Really, we should just call it Topic of the Week, but this lady ain't for turning, so you can stick up your arses. Um, Here's the question for you, Doc, for today. Topic of the day. uh, Stunt casting in who? Does it bother you? Why or why not? Right. Let's get our heads around what we mean by stunt casting. Um, And we'll have a think about whether... Doctor Who has ever actually been guilty of it. So, um, to my mind, stunt casting would be paying money that your production can't really afford um, for a very short or very ineffectual appearance or possibly an extended cameo um, by someone who you expect to bring a gravitas or at least a level of popularity Mm. to your otherwise marginal performance or a degree of respectability uh, to your production that might otherwise seem a bit childish or a bit crass. And I think like Marlon Brando in Superman. Oh, yeah. Um, That's a good example, is isn't it? My, my, my go-to example of stunt casting, mm. where um, I think the man earned something like $7,000 for every word he spoke. Right. And um, apparently, I was just listening to a podcast where they were talking about uh, Marlon Brando. And he was an absolute fucking nightmare on set, wasn't he, on Superman, by all accounts? Um, considering this is coming very, very shortly afterwards, uh, very after the point at which um, the Filipino army were uh, kind of trying to take Francis Ford Coppola aside and asking, you know, like, would they like him to march Marlon Brando into the jungle and shoot him in the back of the head? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think this is sort of a, a particular surprise to anyone. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's that's my go-to example of stunt casting. I mean, who what, what would Doctor Who do for stunt? We're we're in the mid '80s now. For stunt casting, what would Doctor Who do? Doctor Who would cast. I, I can't help but think of Joan Collins. Like, since we're in the mid to late '80s now, um, John Nathan Turner would go broke for half a season to get ten ten minutes of Joan Collins. As it happens, if you remember, he couldn't or didn't try to get Joan Collins, um, and he got her sort of. Um, uh, he, he he got the budget version. He got Kate O'Mara. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I see the connection you're making there. Yes, because like, she was in uh, Dynasty, wasn't she? Kate O'Mara, I believe. 
Oh, I, I can't remember what it was, but she seemed to be like in a string, in a whole lot of like second string Joan Collins roles in mm. second string aspirational American soap operas. Yeah, yeah. Basically an actress upon which to balance a blouse and, 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 and a suit jacket with massive shoulder pads. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Um, yeah, and some um, uh, whatever that um, that red makeup's called that people used to highlight their cheekbones. Mm-hmm. Lots rouge, and lots of maybe that. rouge or blusher, something like that. Um, it's either rouge or blusher. Mm. Um, I'm not enough of an expert to make the call. <laughs> I'm, I'm going with rouge just to get my French friends happy. Yeah, that makes Why sense. Why not? Why um, not? I mean, when I reference stunt casting. I'm thinking, I am thinking about the John Nathan Turner era, although maybe the first example I can think of is, is like John Cleese's appearance in City of Death. Um, you know, as you say, like a, a cameo. I'm sure he didn't come cheap. You know, then later we got the likes of, you know, and as it became ever more infantilised, we got the likes of Ken Dodd, uh, Richard, not Richard O'Brien, who's the other, Richard Bryars, um, and, and Beryl Reed stands out to me as well. Was, was, was she in Warriors from the Deep? Uh, Beryl Reed was in Earthshock, mate. Oh, Earthshock. Oh, go on, yeah, um, go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I am going to ask you, can you hold those thoughts? Because I'll be getting on to a subject closely related to this when we start to talk about today's story. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, may I say at the moment, um, points duly noted, mm. um, could you... Press the pause button on that topic because yep. you'll have endless time to pick it up again later on. No problem. So I suppose that brings us to the end of the topic of the week, basically, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll catch up on it a bit later in the episode. I mean, I've got a couple more things to say about it. Um, it's, I suppose what people call stunt casting only does or doesn't look like stunt casting when the finger's in the can. Um, I have heard all stories, kinder, um, accused of stunt casting for having Richard Todd and Neris Hughes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a peculiar accusation to make. I mean, it was, was Neris Hughes a particularly high-profile celebrity at the time? Um, and Neris Hughes, I can see her face. What was she known for, Doc? Was it from the Liver Birds, or have I got my wires crossed? Um, I believe at that exact time she was famous for being in the district nurse. Oh, right. so, okay. I think many people, when they think of stunt casting, and they might be right and I might be wrong, when many people think of stunt casting, it's um, attaching a face to a character that doesn't necessarily cry out to have a face attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose people's line of thinking was um, Kinder is a character piece. It's a very small, slow piece of drama and there's no part of it that benefits from um granny being able to watch kinder and go oh sir um i think many people's definition of stunt casting might be just attaching a face or a name to a a role or a production that doesn't necessarily cry out to having a name or a face attached to it we'll see how that works out um because we're getting to a candidate for some stunt casting really 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 soon now aren't we well you're right yeah literally Imminently, there's no doubt about it. Um, anything else to say, Doc? Or should we crack into the episode? The longer I don't put it off, the sooner we're going to have to talk about time and the Rani. You're right. Um, 
So um, it's five rounds rapid next, isn't it? It is. Jenkins? Yeah. Shout for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part two of the show, which we call Five Rounds Rapid. Um, here, we basically drop out five or six points and really, really briefly talk about them. Do you want to go first, Doc, or not? Um, please go first. Um, well, my first observation was right from the start of the episode, which was you know, just what a kind of underwhelming regeneration we experienced here. I get it. I kind of understand the reasons for it because by all accounts, Colin refused to, to go back, didn't he? You know, he wasn't obliged to, he wasn't contractually obliged to. He felt so kind of mistreated by the BBC and underappreciated that he, you know, effectively seemed to tell them to go fuck themselves. Um, you know, you deal with it. So I get it. But at the same time, you know, the, the end product does suffer. Yeah, I mean, um, as far as Colin Baker's concerned, the whole um, being stabbed in the back and hung out to dry and being squarely blamed um, for ruining a television programme. Um, yeah, I can understand why he might have had a bit of a beef about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Did, 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 um, you know, did you find the regeneration problematic or did you just kind of go with the flow, knowing the background? Um, problematic. I didn't find it problematic. Just like you said, it was just very, very underwhelming. Mm. For me, at the time, it was oddly tonally appropriate, considering the season we'd just come off, which um, I don't even remember feeling was bad. What I remember about season 23 was it just consistently losing my attention. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily felt like I'd missed out if I wondered in the middle of an episode or if something happened and I had to wander out halfway through an episode. I've never seen all of every episode in that season. There's a couple I missed. There's a couple, I, and I, I just completely forgot that Doctor Who was on. Yeah. And my overwhelming memory of the end of that season was how completely underwhelmed by it <clears throat> I was. And then I started to hear the rumours about who they'd cast as the Doctor next. And... Unfortunately, it coincided with um, me acquiring an acquaintance in New Zealand um, and an acquaintance in the Federal Republic of Germany um, who were able to begin trickling me VHS tapes of stuff they'd recorded off cable TV um, in exchange for stuff from UK TV that they weren't gonna get, going to get in their countries for years. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of um, had the beginnings of my, uh, my Underground Railroad um, for getting my old Doctor Who by then. And that began to consume my interest far more. Mm. And I, I don't remember, I don't remember the regeneration having a great effect on me. Um, as you say, just underwhelming. Did you, you said that you, you kind of heard rumblings about uh, who the next Doctor was. Now, of course, this was three or four years before I kind of really got into Who. Um, were, were you familiar with Sylvester McCoy, but, but, you know, before he landed in the TARDIS? I didn't know the name. Um, then when someone said, um, it's that bloke who was on Jigsaw, um, Jigsaw okay. was a very, very odd, even by the standards of UK children's television, it was a very odd programme that was um, about solving puzzles. Um, I don't propose to talk about it very much. Um, 
except if anybody listening is familiar with the work of Charlie Brooker, um, it must have uh, made a very, very great impression on him um, because he seems to like to make lots of reference to, to nosy bonk wherever he can. Yeah, I mean, nosy bonk um, is that terrifying kind of white-faced figure with like the uh, like Pinocchio nose, isn't it? Really, really, really weird. Well, he's he's like a, a a thing from a Magritte painting in a Clockwork Orange mask. Yeah, it, it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. bizarre. Uh, uh, so, listeners, <clears throat> if you can try to imagine, um, to all intents and purposes, a um, an English gent um, in an immaculate three-piece suit with a bowler hat, um, but a horrible, leering, blank-eyed, big-nosed, um, white death mask. Mm, mm. Really, really frightening. <clears throat> and that's what Nosy Bonk was. Yeah, yeah um, I recommend people uh, Google it if, if, if you've never seen him before. It will astonish you that this was put on children's TV. I had the idea that if, if the warped minds behind Jigsaw were going to be having anything to do with Doctor Who at all, um, for instance, we might get Nosy Bonk in Doctor Who, and that would have mm. been brilliant. <laughs> um, but no, instead we got the Candyman. Really, um, yeah, but wouldn't Nosy Bonk have been better? Oh, certainly. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Yeah, Give me Nosy Bonk every day over the Candyman, for Christ's sake. I mean, we'll uh, we'll get round to uh, the Happiness Patrol um, all in good course, and I, I, sh I shall have a few choice things to say about that then. Um, my, so, um, yeah, I, I, we all sort of, and we were trying to think the best. We were trying to make the best of it. And I, I certainly had the idea that if, if the warped minds behind Jigsaw had anything to do with Doctor Who, um, then there might be something in it. Um, there was a particular acquaintance of mine. Um, you met him later. I don't think you had uh, at that point. And we were down the pub discussing it. And he just sort of um, lifted his head from his usual uh, fug of existential gloom um, and said, uh, he's a crap pub entertainer who only works in pubs because he never gets hired for children's parties. Yeah. And yeah. then dropped his head again. Yeah, no, it's true. It's um, true. If, if, if your biggest claim to fame is playing the spoons. What's your first point, Proper Duck? Well, um, I've got a bit of a mission statement here, which is, like I said, coming off the back, coming off of doing um, uh, The Twin Dilemma last week, didn't enjoy being nasty about it, didn't enjoy watching it. Um, when this season of Doctor Who was on, I hated it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely hated it. Um, in a way that I don't think my pre-adolescent mind had fully comprehended the idea of really hating. Um, but that was a long time ago. And since then, something very peculiar has happened, which is that I've become aware that the Sylvester McCoy era <clears throat> has its own fans some of whom don't even like or have a lot of time for the rest of Doctor Who. Mm. And I know some of these people, and they tend to be intelligent, they tend to be articulate, they tend to be well-read. Um, if you're into Sylvester McCoy Doctor Who, the one thing you can say for sure is that you're not into it for hipster reasons, right? Well, I, I tell you what, um, I, listen to, um, I, I, I listen to a different Doctor Who podcast called the Big Blue Box Podcast. Shout out to those guys, by the way, Gary and Adam. They're excellent. Um, and Gary, you know, confidently claims that Sylvester is, is by far his favourite Doctor. You know, now this is a man who who, who cites such stories as the invasion, um, 
Inferno, Caves of Androzani are some of his favourite stories. But then Sylvester is his favourite Doctor and favourite era. I find, it, I find it a bit baffling, you know. I, I love Gary to pieces, but I, I, I can't join the dots. Um, I found it baffling. And, and then after a while, you start to think to yourself, well, um, there's all of these people who, um, as far as I can tell, I have every reason to respect their opinion. What is it that they, can, they, they can't see that I can't? And mm. a very big part of what I'm going to be doing during this era of Doctor Who is trying to figure out what it is that they can see and I can't. And mm. if I can change my mind, if I, can, if I can alter my own way of thinking, and if I can find something new in the world to enjoy, then I'll be delighted. Yeah, well, good on you, Doc. Good on you. Um, I, I, I hope you find happiness from it. Um, my next point... A bit of a Debbie Downer, I suppose, but again, in that first kind of 15 minutes, McCoy kind of pratfalling around and gurning and rolling his R's. I just, you know, I just, what a bad omen for, for what is to come this is, you know. Instant kind of, instantly, instantly juvenile, instantly childish, instantly cringeworthy, duck. I could barely fucking watch it. It, it. it made my teeth itch. Um, it's hard work. Um, it's really, really hard work. It is the apps. It, it's not even an inauspicious start. It's the diametric opposite of what an auspicious start would mm -hmm. be. Yeah. Um, I mean that that first scene of his where um, he does a really bad backwards pratfall, mm -hmm. picks up his umbrella, brandishes it, and goes. The question is. Who am I? And who are you? Mm. Ah, the Rani. Yeah. And oh, my skin's crawling. My skin's crawling, even horrible. with your kind of rendition of it. It's burned into my head. Um, and that scene, that, that bit was my first challenge. Um, that was my first challenge to my, uh, uh, come on, Dr. LeQuestens, get over yourself. Mm. What do people see in this? Um, as if with a blinding flash of light, um, it occurred to me. It's supposed to be John Nathan Turner's pitch for getting Doctor Who back on Saturday nights where it belongs. Nobody was particularly happy about the, mid the, the, the midweek scheduling ever. Mm. Um, and I think John Nathan Turner had looked at the Saturday night schedules on BBC One, how they had always been, and he isn't wrong in the conclusion he drew. The conclusion he drew was variety. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Light end, low brow, um, not even comedy, um, but just a Saturday night full of stuff to make the horrors of the working week and life under Thatcher go away for a little while. Yeah, yeah. Um, for tens of millions of people all mm -hmm. over the country. Um, and he looked at the schedule and he realized that Doctor Who fitted in. Um, it came after the football results. <clears throat> um, and then immediately afterwards, um, the the wall of fluff began. So you would have something like the generation game. Mm. Then you would have something like some sort of tacky variety show set in a pretend theatre, probably hosted by Jimmy Tarbuck. Um, and then that would go on until Dad's t Dad got back from the pub on Saturday night um, and it was time for match of the day at 10.30 or 11. Yeah, no, you're quite right. Um, I, 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 um, it's funny you mentioned the Generation Game because that's exactly the, the programme that was in my mind when you started speaking. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of on the same page there, I think. Here's what I think happened. I think this, this season, 
and more more than that the story and more than that this episode and more than that the first 50 minutes of this episode is john nathan turner's powerpoint presentation it's his sales pitch for why doctor who belongs on bbc one on saturday nights not anything to do with whatever doctor who used to be in the past but fair and square in the middle of the light and variety schedule do you think you know that if you like slapstick then 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 suddenly this becomes like wildly entertaining now you know i would go on record and say i think that slapstick is just the the the, the lowest form of humor you, you used a great expression not even comedy and i would apply that to slapstick basically not it's not even comedy it's just awful i fucking hate slapstick and so th this just pushes all of my wrong buttons yeah um and it's it's the wrong kind of populism um now um if you fought in the culture wars for as long as i have um then at the, from time to time you'll end up having moments of self-doubt and thinking to yourself well like is it right am i a snob um Doctor Who has been consistently supported by The Sun. Mm. Um, the Sun, for whatever reason, has always been very, very kind to Doctor Who, um, even though, as we've discussed many times, Doctor Who has always been approximately left-leaning and The Sun has not. Mm -hmm. um, and The Sun, whenever it was regeneration time, The Sun would always make half-joking, half-serious predictions about who their readers... Mm. Um, the readers of the Super Soraway Sun would like to see be, um, uh, being the next Doctor Who. And the candidates were always very, very predict predictable. Um, the candidates were all always um, some kind of Nazi comedian from East London. Uh, uh, not naming so, names, but with initials JD by any chance? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. I think we've got it. Um, they would always include uh, some... Um, Airheaded bint who made a reasonable living whacking a baps out in that very newspaper. Um, <laughs> Those were the days, Doc. Those were the days. Um, they would always include a footballer or possibly a snooker player. Mm. Can you imagine um, Gary Lineker as Doctor uh, uh, Who? Wouldn't it have been fabulous? Well, the thing is. Or Paul Gascoigne. Um, <laughs> oh, mate. Um, crazy. <laughs> I never even thought of Paul Gascoigne <laughs> crying and dribbling all over Doctor Who. <laughs> An alternate universe that needs to be oh, that... needs to be explored, man. And you've almost taken the sting out of my um, my fourth example of candidacy, um, or a darts player. Oh yeah, it's Jockey Wilson. Jockey Wilson is the Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> or Eric Bristow. Oh, fabulous! Yeah, uh, fabulous. The Sun. Um, had in its thrall a very large constituency of the people who watched Doctor Who, which, as, as I mentioned before, never made any sense to me. Um, but there they were. I imagine John Nathan Turner thought there were far worse people to get 100% on your side. Um, and um, since he tried pandering to Z-grade celebrity Doctor Who fans for a couple of years, and it hadn't gone so well, he thought he'd panda to basically the only supporters he had left um which was the crassly populist saturday night uh, sun reading um light ants viewers as i say i i, I agonize about this all the time 
Um, am I an insufferable snob? Um, if I succeed in getting over myself and enjoying Sylvester McCoy era Doctor Who, will I go on to enjoy Jim Davidson? Mm, mm. Um, uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, you, you may find yourself um, downloading the entire back catalogue of Roy Chubby Brown's uh, comedy sets. I should point out, by the way, um, I did take the trouble to watch um, Dave Allen quite recently. Over mm -hmm. I, 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 I realised that I missed Dave Allen over Christmas and uh, it occurred to me, you know, it'd be nice to watch Dave Allen over Christmas. I tell you what, I'd completely forgotten how ran how rancidly anti-Semitic it was. Oh, really? No, no, I haven't seen Dave Allen yeah. since the eighties, so I don't know. I, I can't really remember. Um, I mean, that stuff is never repeated and never shown and never widely talked about now. And oh my God, there's a good reason for oh, that. There's a reason. You know what? Um, he's sometimes I'm, on. He's sometimes on channels like UK TV Gold. You do sometimes see, like you know, like a Dave Allen special or you know the Dave Allen show. But whether whether it's kind of a trimmed down version, I don't know. I mean, um, on his Christmas special, when his opening salvo out of the box was "Christmas has never been the same since they let the Jews get hold of it." Oh, good lord! Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And um, and then it sort of gets more specific and nastier after that. Mm. No, I've got no memory of that. Um, so, uh, whose turn is it for the next point? We've, we've meant to be five um, rounds, rounds rapid again, and we've we, we, we gone off on wild tangents about racist and, and anti-Semitic comedians from the 1970s. Um, well, I'm going to take the next point as well. Go on. Um, and I'm going to follow up with this, uh, because this is going to hand over into a way for me to give back to you what I took, took away from you earlier on. Um, in the light of what I just said, suddenly... All the stupid things in season 24 make perfect sense. And what I'm going to talk about now is um, what, what we were discussing, was it or wasn't it stunt casting? Mm. I think John Nathan Turner thought it was stunt casting um, to get Kate O'Mara and to get Ken Dodd um, and people like that um, and make as many casting decisions as he could um, to get Doctor Who as close to light ends mm -hmm. as he could get. Um, I mean, does um, have I gone mad, or does that theory make any kind of sense to you? Well, no, it totally makes sense. But, you know, I can imagine. I mean, Kate O'Mara is a strange one because I think Kate O'Mara was probably more famous in America than she was here at the time. Um, but, but the same, can, of course, cannot be said for Ken Dodd, uh, who I imagine never broke America. I could be wrong, um, and. I can I can imagine Kate O'Mara on like the two Ronnie's show Christmas special for example that she'd be a perfect guest on yeah. there for them to like, lampoon and take the piss out of you know and, and make to look foolish so, yeah absolutely absolutely perfect and that's exactly what you're talking about isn't it you know two Ronnie's light entertainment you know um, for the masses you don't have to really have to think about it too much admittedly you know much much smarter in wordplay than 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 the slapstick stuff. You know that the, the, I despise, but yeah, I, I, I can see your point totally. Yeah. Um, so, just you talking about Kate O'Mara. Um, Joan Collins, of course, had been an actress for a long time, but she became a celebrity, <clears throat> um, like she became a global superstar um, off of the back of a about an eight-year series of um, commercials for Light Spirits that she did together with Leonard Rossiter. Oh, that was um, 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 Cinzano Bianca. 
Yes, it was. Yeah, oh, yes, um, I, I, I vaguely remember that. The plot of each one of these adverts would be that um, Joan Collins would be a beautiful lady who would be fawned over by Leonard Rossiter in best in in his best vile old lecher mm. mode. Mm -hmm. um, who would um, and he would end up um, lots of innuendo, obviously, but the purpose of the advert would be he would somehow contrive to soak her top um, in light spirits of some description in the hope of making her nipples show. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. We've all um, been there, Doc. We've all been there. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I think because of Joan Collins' effortless ability to, in a very, very short space of time, in 30 seconds, to manage to portray the emotions of, um, you know, a reaction to sexual harassment and disgust and tolerance and dignity and coming out coming out of it looking better than the guy who was harassing her. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of the role um, that set the way for the roles that Joan Collins would go on to become legendary in. Um, so I think there were a lot of her rivals or uh, a lot of her second-rate mate wakes um, who wanted a chance to do something like that and they would have been quite delighted for the chance to abase themselves on the two ronnies mm. um you know like having ronnie corbett dressed as a gnome sat on their knee and singing a song or something at christmas time <laughs> yeah um or on doctor who being made fun of by by, by sylvester mccoy it worked for Joni. um yeah. you know it, it um being, being being made being made to look stupid and coming out of it looking good. That's what did it for Joni. Mm. It can do the same for me. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, mate. You make some very, very fine points. My final point for this part of the show, um, the Rani dressing up as Mel and kind of putting on the squeaky voice. I mean, it's, I suppose at least now we know what McCoy is into in the bedroom. Let's just leave it at that because, you know, the very, very strange kind of sexual dynamics going on in that in, 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 in that sequence, I thought, Doc. I don't know about you. There's a whole bunch of, and once again, um, it goes along with how on earth are you supposed to read, for instance, BBC Children's Television, how are you supposed to read Jigsaw? Mm. Um, how are you supposed to read stuff that, from an adult perspective, looks kinky as fuck? Mm. Um, like really, what are we supposed to make of? Um, so the um, the placeholder for the dominant figure, which is the white man, he starts off with like a, a, a simpering non-entity, um, and then this towering camp dominatrix kidnaps him um, and puts him in a bondage scenario, and then dresses up as his simpering non-entity of a companion mm -hmm. um and then um having undermined him once by dominating him and having undermined him, undermined him again by overpowering him she then undermines him a third time by topping from the bottom um and pretending to be his student companion um whilst at the same time emotionally manipulating him mm -hmm. and the, the you know, there's there's so much weird and kinky stuff. Um, I've had the chance, and I've never even taken the trouble um, to poll um, gay gay acquaintances and 
acquaintances who are in the the kingster life what they might make of this mm. um and i kind of wish i had sure because um i can't believe that every one of those there's some signals i caught um and there must be a dozen different signals that i didn't even catch because i'm not in any of those worlds yeah, yeah. and I would be fascinated to get to know the opinion of people who are in those worlds and who live in those worlds, what the fuck they think is going on. Mm, it did very, very peculiar. Very peculiar indeed. And, and for me, it doesn't really... I mean, does it, does it not have a place? That's a, it's one of those... It, I suppose it's kind of like a, it's a victimless crime, really, isn't it? You know, um, it, it, what's the difference in, in getting Kate O'Mara to kind of dress up like a... almost like a cheerleader, effectively, and put her in pigtails... What's the difference between doing that and having Lola Ward and all of her kind of kink outfits from season 17? What's the difference? There's a couple of differences. Um, you, in, um, let's say, City of Death, or um, which is the one where she gets the pink leather fox hunting outfit. Um, oh, yes. Like, is that on. full circle? Um, no, it, it's 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 definitely season seventeen. Is it? Um, oh yeah, I can't remember. I can. I know. I know exactly the costume you're talking about, but I can't place the story. Yeah. Um, the difference is, um, even though it was made in part for an audience who may have been quite young, all of that stuff was made by people who knew what they were doing, and everyone was in on the joke. Mm. Um, you watch Time and the Rani, and I get the distinct impression that the production crew were in on the joke. Um, I'm assuming Kate O'Mara was already a gay icon by that point in her career, and she was in on the joke. The people who weren't in on the joke were the audience. Mm. And I don't even know if I disapprove of that. There are a few too few things on television nowadays that leave me sitting there scratching my head and going, what the fuck have I just witnessed? There isn't mm -hmm. enough of that on television now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's downright hypocritical for me to say, time in the Rani goes places it shouldn't go and sends off signals it shouldn't be sending out, and then complain about television consistently failing to shock me and television consistently failing to be transgressive. Um, I can't have both. Um, if I demand that television is transgressive, I must accept that somehow, that sometimes it's going to be transgressive in ways that I personally don't like. Yeah, of course, um, yeah, it's, it's going to going to tickle one of your sacred cows, basically, and 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 that's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? Um, it might not be tickling one of my sacred cows. It just might not be um, sort of poking one of my particular kinks. Mm, yeah, it's true. Uh, it's true. It, it, just just an oddness to it. Are we done for this section, Doc? I think we are. Yeah. Yeah, I think we probably are. Commander, you are authorized to use the mind probe. What? No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call, oh no, not the mind probe. Here, we just talk about other shows or movies that have been influenced or were influenced by um, this particular story. This story, by the way, was broadcast in September 1987. Oh, incidentally, I, we didn't talk about the writers and directors, did we? So written by Pip and Jane Baker, directed by Andrew Morgan, music by Geoff McGulloch. Um, any thoughts here, Doc? Do you want to kick us off this time? Sure. Um, so 
there is a peculiar mixture of um, old people who were never that good in their prime and should have been retired by now, and um, very young, very inexperienced people. Um, I don't think there's anyone approaching, there's anyone involved in the production of this who is anything approaching the peak of their powers. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people like Andrew Morgan um, would go on to mature and have great careers, not particularly careers in things that I like a great deal, once again, but very successful careers within the BBC. Ditto Andrew Cartmel. Um, and, I mean, all of that youthful enthusiasm is right there up on screen, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, there's kind of a naivety to it, I suppose, um, and and sometimes that, that kind of kind of youthful exuberance can manifest as something kind of dynamic and boundary pushing and and, and full of energy. Um, but I, I, I don't think I don't think that's the case here for me personally. I don't get that vibe from it. No, I, I mean, um, I think we need to think of the story as all of those people just trying to get through their first week on the job. Yeah, yeah. Um, just trying to get through their first week in country and not get killed. Mm. Um, and then when that's over, then they get on, then they can get onto the serious work of trying to figure out what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I find it hard to fault the idea of Andrew Cartmel. Um, I've never met him. I've written to him once or twice. Um, and he was one of those people who, despite holding what might be considered an executive position in the BBC, took the trouble to handwrite letters to people who wrote to him. Oh, that's lovely. Um, and that means a lot. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's lovely. Um, that really means a lot. He's also gone on to have an excellent career. And um, much, much, much later, we'll talk about the Cartmel Master Plan. Mm. Um, for the record... If Andrew Cartmel says now, it never existed, um, it never was a thing, um, I believe him. I absolutely, yeah, sure, whatever you say. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say it wasn't, watching Doctor Who at the time and not having access to um, the innermost thoughts of the people involved in the production, it seemed obvious, quote unquote, obvious to us that there was a Cartmel master plan. <clears throat> and yeah, but- little. I don't. I don't think he denies that, Doc. I don't think. I heard an interview with him about a year ago, in which I mean, he didn't. Ex- he laughed when that phrase was used. You know, he, he, he seemed to find the, the the notion of this kind of Cartmel master plan amusing, but 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 he certainly confirmed that you know he kind of had a, a, a um, you know plans afoot for at least the next two seasons post season twenty six if they'd have been allowed to come to fruition. Yeah, um, but. We've got plenty of time to talk about this, and um, I, I intend to because I think it's fascinating in its own right. It's a fascinating persuasion of stuff that happened in popular culture from about the year 2004 onwards. It was a very, very early, small-scale iteration of that. Um, and if people are thinking about, hmm, could Dr. Lequestens be referring to um, people getting a reputation or people deliberately running with um, an untrue story that's being told about them and using it for their own publicity and it backfiring on them massively. If people think I'm talking about something like that, they will be right. Oh, yes. Have you got an example for us, Doc? Or? 
in the context of Doctor Who right now? No, 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 no. You know, the, uh, oh, oh, hang on. Did, did I misunderstand? I, I thought you were talking about kind of showrunners from other shows who've kind of had similar, you know, similar problems or similar no, stories um, told I, about them. No, um, I'm talking about what popular culture is or yeah. what popular culture has been since about 2004, which is mm-hmm. <clears throat> someone wants to be famous mm. and they do something shocking Mm. And they purposefully promulgate half-truths, lies, stories that have been told about them with the intention of using the outrage that's created to become even more famous and wealthy. Sure. And then complain like, and then squeal like stuck pigs when it backfires horribly on them and ruins their lives. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that seems to me to be popular culture since about 2004. Mm. That's what it is. Um. And you go back to season 24 and you can see the very beginnings of it happening in a very, very small way um, within the constraints of Doctor Who and Doctor Who fandom, which honestly I don't think can have been more than a couple of thousand people by then. I, I, I don't think if you're talking about um, persuading all the Doctor Who fans to like you, I don't think that could have been more than 2000 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. And yeah. that's why I think, and that's why I think purposefully turning your back on the Doctor Who fans, doing stuff to alienate the Doctor Who fans, wasn't actually a terrible idea from a television executive's point of view, or from a director's point of view, or a producer's point of view. It was probably the very best thing they could have done. Yes. Um, yes. You know, it's it's literally we've we've paid attention to these people for three years. Well conceivably for five years now, we've been paying attention to this people and look what it's brought us to. Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> kind of lowest viewing figures in, in, the, in the show's history, lowest um, kind of critical satisfaction, lowest audience satisfaction. Yeah, just every, everything was spiralling downwards, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so, um, <clears throat> I mean, let's try something new because however bad it ends up being, can't easily be as bad as it has been for the last three or four years. And at least we can say we tried. Yeah, um, it, it's that, that that great Einstein quote, isn't it? You know, the, you know, the definition of madness is keep doing, the, keep doing the same thing and expecting the results to change. Yeah, absolutely. And more importantly, when Doctor Who does go under, when you get carpeted before the selection board um, at the BBC and be told to explain yourself, would you rather have to explain yourself by saying, we tried something new, we didn't spend very much money, it didn't work, sorry about that. Yeah. Or would you rather try saying, we carried on flogging the same horse, spending too much money, doing the same stuff, mm. trying to please the same people. We can't understand why it didn't work out. Yeah. You weren't there, man. I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. You weren't there, man. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that's being done right, um, and I'm I'm actually kind of so in admiration of the spirit that's behind what we're witnessing that I'm almost prepared to ignore the fact um, that there's huge chunks of the story that I really don't enjoy watching, but. I'm going to drop a bomb now. The thing about the story that struck me on the most recent watch through um, is 
how little emotional response of any kind it engendered in me. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get past the few um, really cringeworthy bits, like Sylvester McCoy doing pratfalls and um, Kate O'Mara um, like vamping Bonnie Langford. Yeah. Um, the whole entire of the rest of it is a run around in a quarry of exactly the same kind that people used to criticise the, mid, the the middle of the Graham Williams era for, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, the, the, it, you know, I recently watched. Uh, in fact, we recently watched it as kind of preparation for doing this podcast. We kind of did a pilot episode, didn't we, Doc? And we watched the Hand of Fear, um, and, and, and you know. Fine. Uh, well, and, and, you know, my memory of the Hand of Fear was that the whole thing took place in a quarry. Of course, that proved to be incorrect. My memory was faulty. Um, but, but that is the image you get from that, from that era of Doctor Who, isn't it? Sure. Um, but um, this actually was. Yeah. Lots and lots of running around in a quarry. Yeah. Um, I mean, nothing happens, really, for two episodes. Literally nothing happens. I'll tell you something that struck a really, really jarring note for me. The character of Icona... Now, we assume from his name, don't we, that he's supposed to be some sort of an iconoclast. Sure. There's a a clear inference. uh, He's supposed to be a breaker of idols. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it me, or is the guy an absolutely vile racial supremacist? Mm -hmm. What do you base that on, Doc? Give us some some deets, if you would. Um. Well, I mean, his his constant speeches advocating separatism. Mm. Um, there was another line that I pulled out, Doc, and it was not from that character. It was from um, the Rani, actually. Uh, she mm. said, I don't know if you spotted this. I'm sure you did with your massive brain. Um, she said... <laughs> she said <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. <laughs> she said, hang on. She, you, see, you, see, you see, listeners, you see, I'm so pleased. I've never had the chance to say that in anger before. <laughs> listeners, it's actually the Rani who's got a massive brain in her cellar. Not me. Really. I'm not the one who got the massive brain. It's the Rani who's... But, but Mo said... I'm sure you must have seen it with your massive brain. And then for the first time in my life, I was able to say, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so pleased. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. I live to give. Um, She said, the benevolent benevolent climate has induced, let me me say properly, the benevolent climate has induced lethargy, said the Rani. Now, is that a bit like saying... You know, Africans are lazy because Africa is hot. Is that what the writers were saying? Um, I don't think it's specifically African. Mm. Um, I don't, because uh, I mean... It, um, Not my opinion, I by the way. I'm, ju- I'm just querying the, the, you know, the motivations uh, of the writers. I don't think there are many people who would seriously contend that Somalia is a particularly clement climate or a particularly mm. easy place to make a living. Mm. Um, so it's the kind of thing a kinky diminutrix would say, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is no self-improvement. There's, there's no self-improvement without discipline. Sure. Uh, no pain, no gain, basically. You can't. Yeah. Uh, you can't go too easy on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, that, to me, that line, that, that line really kind of smacked of kind of old colonial mentality. Um, and it, it just it got me yeah. thinking about the writers. It's, I actually tried to dig into. Oh, sorry, Doc. I actually tried to dig into the writers a little bit. 
obviously the the writers have been Pip and Jane Baker. Now here's the thing, Doc. I thought they were. I thought it was two women. I thought Pip and Jane were two women. Um, I didn't realise that Pip was short for Philip. Um, but I could I, I could find nary a whiff. Say it again, Doc. Is it a husband and wife or a brother? And sister? Is it a so. husband and wife or a brother and sister? I think I think it's husband, but but there, but there is there is so little on the that I could find out about them. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was curious. You know, I'll be honest. My kind of biased supposition after hearing that line, I would not have been surprised to find you know they were born in you know I, I don't know like in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia as it would have been called at the time. You know, yeah. Um, they're putting the words into the mouths of the villain, um, and it's the kind of um, vaguely flabbily totalitarian, flabbily patriarchal, flabbily colonial supremacist thing mm. that you can put into the mouths of your villain and all of your um, Guardian reading viewers um, are going to be able to fold their arms and go, mm, bad, mm -hmm. bad, um, uh, equating in discipline um, with lack of development, mm, bad. Sure. That's how we know she's a villain. But you're, you're not confronting anyone by putting words like that in the mouths of your villain. Mm -hmm. um, it's not even a particularly villainous thing to say. Um, there are, you know, there are plenty of people who've been in Doctor Who. Um, who we think of as the good guys, who I can imagine saying, I can imagine the Brigadier saying that. Um, uh, I can imagine Castellan Spandrel saying that. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't disagree. Just, just, you know, just, just a point of observation, really. Just, just, to, just, to pick your, just to pick your brain, really. Criticising British colonialism um, is never a bad thing, uh, and we probably can't have too much of it. It would be a bit more poignant if the Rani were behaving a bit more like a colonialist. Mm. Um, as far as I can see, her, her, she doesn't have any plans to colonise the planet or sort of do, do anything to the inhabitants of the planet. She needs an operating base yeah. to carry out her silly plan. It's got yes, nothing to do with where she is. No, she's got no, she's got no interest in the planet or the people, actually. She, she, she's just kind of opportuni opportunistically using... The place and the people to kind of create. I don't know what was the plan. Really, some kind of time manipulation device so that she could control the universe. Something like that, isn't it? With with you know with those with with those super intelligent yeah. those super intellectuals that she's kind of captured and, and and got in the basement effectively. Yeah, and we'll we'll get onto that in, in a minute as well because that's mm. one of the stupidest plots ever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it also strikes a political note that I really 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 don't like, but. I don't feel as though the director, or particularly whoever it was who planned the locations, from the script, you get the idea that Lacertia is supposed to be some sort of, um, you know, lush paradise where delicious fruit falls from the trees. Nobody has to work. Um, there are cute little monkeys that leap around and do cute things and entertain you. And it's the kind of... From what we're told, it's the kind of society that has bred gentle, lazy, blameless, viceless people um, who are just ripe to be conquered. Mm. Um, except, of course, the Rani doesn't do anything about conquering them. 
she doesn't even seem to exploit them very much. Um, and the planet looks like an absolute shithole. It really does. It really does, doesn't it? My God, one of one of one of Donald Trump's uh, shithole countries, effectively. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I, as far as being lazy, um, do we see any evidence of how those people do their subsistence agriculture? Mm-hmm. I mean, do we see any evidence of how those people come by their shelter or their fresh water? Mm-hmm. Or because their clothes? The, or their, yeah. the, the, the meanest, most savage existence looks like it would be a titanic struggle on that planet. Sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, Next point, Doc. Um, essentialism. This is the closest the story actually got to making me angry. Um, aren't we essentially told that um, there is such a thing as genius juice? Um, that genius is a sort of, some sort of genetic faculty that, that the Rani can drain off and store in her big brain. Yeah, I think that's the idea, isn't it? She, you know, she's, she's, she's gathered the greatest minds in the, in the galaxy, if not the universe, together. And, and somehow, by kind of pooling this genetic material, uh, she's going to create some kind of massive, hyper-intelligent brain that's going to be able to solve all of her problems for her. That, that, that seemed to be the thrust of it for me. Yeah. So Pip and Jane Baker made a career out of writing educational textbooks for primary school children. Um, and Pip and Jane Baker have written a Doctor Who story um, that tells their youthful audience, don't even bother trying kids. You're mm. born a genius or else you're not. That's right, um, you've yeah. Got, um, You've got genius juice, um, or else fuck off and work in the factory. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, uh, intelligence and the ability to solve problems, all of that stuff—it's completely essential. Um, it's in your DNA. You were born with it, um, and if you weren't, then there's no hope for you. It's—it's it's going to be a recurring theme of uh, Andrew Cartmel's watch, which is broad simplistic, vaguely left-wing statements not thought out alongside some really dodgy politics. Well, you, you know, I mean, effectively, the, you know, with, with your description, there, um, which, which I do agree with, you know, it, it, it's kind of an effective kicking of the working classes, isn't it, basically, and saying, you know, get down there where you belong, you, you fucking hoi polloi. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's an absolutely shameless statement of, um, of essentialism. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, uh, there is no other way, you know, you are what you were born to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, predestined. And it's... If, you, if you're born on a yeah, council uh, estate and go to the wrong school, well, bad luck, Charlie, because that, that, that's what your genetics permit for. Um, unless you've got genius juice. Mm-hmm. Um, unless the great sky power has seen fit to inject you with genius juice. And, you know, it doesn't matter where you were born. If, you, if, if the great sky parrot didn't inject you with genius juice, then, um, well, there it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sort of something that's difficult for me to get behind. Um, and <laughs> honestly, the closest that the story came to having an emotional effect on me this time around. And um, in the end, um, it wasn't the retina-scorching, madness-inducing nightmare that I remember it being, or that I was quite fearful of watching. For the most part, it's just dull. Yeah, it's boring. It's just really boring, isn't it? It's really, really boring. What it reminds you of is one of the lesser episodes of Blake 7, to be honest with you. Sure. Yes, one of the ones with the Space Savages. Yeah, or like just some very, very thinly sketched alien race who, despite being... they're, They're always explicitly called a race, 
but they don't even particularly exhibit much in the way of culture or language or mm. any, any of the characteristics that you might expect a race to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're there to illustrate one particular concept in science fiction. Um, and they run around a quarry for a bit. And, um, you know, we, we know the villain is bad because uh, the villain sets a booby trap. Um, this was in the era of... Um, Diana Spencer beginning to spin her spin up her landmines campaign, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, very very, very interesting um, connection. So, um, one of the uh, poor innocent Lacertians steps on a landmine, um, and that's how we know that being a villain is a really bad thing, because uh, a little girl steps on a landmine. Mm. Um, I must say. I did quite, I, I quite like, I quite enjoyed the, uh, the, the like the bubble traps. I didn't know what else to call them, like the, the bubble traps. I, I thought that was quite a neat idea, and uh, even the execution, I, I found uh, quite pleased. Apart from like the pathetic explosion at the end, you know that that kind of sphere with with the character trapped inside spinning around, you know, for nineteen eighty, did I say nineteen eighty eight? 1987. Yeah. For nineteen eighty seven, I thought it looked rather effective, actually. Um, yeah, except um, from the Rani's point of view, it looks a really, really, really expensive way of achieving something that uh, a rogue arms dealer on the border of Thailand would sell you for about 15 quid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. or a single bullet would do just as effectively, I guess. Um, I mean, it's, um, it is quite a good effect, um, but it's, it's so... Because the story lacks the storytelling power to make us feel fear or feel discomfort about the Rani's plan. Um, We have to go back to these um, very, very conscious, very, very childish demonstrations um, of why the Rani is bad. And the Rani is bad is because she sets landmines for little girls. Yeah, I don't don't know what else it did to you, Doc, but, but, but to me... Um, I as soon as I finished watching it, I instantly jumped on the internet and I booked myself a absorbing holiday in Queensland. You are going to have to explain to me what that is. Well, absorb is a big plastic bubble that you climb inside and, and roll down hillsides, basically. What are those? What that's are those? Yeah, that, that's absorbs. So, oh yeah. my goodness! Yes, I couldn't help thinking about absorbs when I was watching the, 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 those kind of bubble booby traps. Sure. Um, I mean, um, it's a neat effect. Mm. Um, and it's, it's nice to see the outer limits of what's possible with the video processing technology of the 1980s being explored a bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of other quite nice effects. I quite like the brain. Yeah, I, I, I like the brain. I, I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind. The, the you know the terrible and the, you know, I say I don't mind it and then I kind of kick it instantly but I don't, I don't mind the terrible like rainbow effect on, as the TARDIS kind of comes into land. I've got no objection to it. it, it you know, it's silly. It makes no sense. But does the TARDIS make sense? I don't think so. Um, well, I, I mean, let's just cheer for a bit of queer signalling, shall we? Well, exactly. Exactly what I thought, sir. Exactly what I thought. I mean. If I had been designing the brain, or if I had been building the brain, as you know, I would have put many, many small plastic tubes all the way through it to pump viscous green liquid yeah. through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you you can't have a giant glowing brain in a cell <laughs> uh, without it pulsating and oozing liquid now, can you? No, no, it no, makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, come on, guys. What are you thinking? I'm also disappointed that the brain didn't get out of the Rani's control close to the end. I, I, I would have liked it better if the brain had been fooling the Rani all along and halfway through episode four. Well, no, but for the climax of episode three, it got out of her control and went floating around with a pair of eyes on it mm. and strangling people with tentacles. We are dancing dangerously close to um, kind of production stuff here. Do you, do you think this is a good time to jump into part four? What do you reckon? Well, honestly, I sort of, I thought we'd just effortlessly segued into this part of it, um, mm. possibly because we're, we're getting so practised at this now. Yeah, but you know, you know, you know, I like a format, Doc, and I, I, I like to name my stings. Um, yeah. So, um, okay, that was the pre-title sequence. Shall we have the title sequence and then move on to um, overweight, underpowered museum piece? Let's do that. Overweight, underpowered museum piece. Welcome to part four, which, as the good doctor just told us, is called Overweight Underpower Museum Piece. Here we just talk about production, costumes, effects, direction, etc. Um, I'm going to start this bit, Doc, if you don't mind. I'm going to talk about the music. I mean, where to, where to begin, really? Where to begin? Um, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, 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 the synth sounds are very much of the time, and, and, and I can easily forgive that, not least because... My God, don't, doesn't it sound like Children of Bodom at times? And I do like me a bit of Children of Bodom. Um, but my big problem was just how damn loud it was in the mix. What, what's going on? What, what on earth was going on? Surely it wasn't broadcast like that. That's some fuck up on the DVD or Blu-ray, isn't it? I don't think so. It, it, <laughs> was, commented on, uh, it was commented at the time just how much music there was. Mm. Um, some people will have you believe that Kef McCulloch has taken an unfair beating um, for his music over the years. Um, I think he deserves every toe cap. Mm. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not merely that the compositions are bad. The compositions are bad. They're really, really, really bad. Yeah. Um, it's the fact that nobody seemed to have any ear for the fact that the music should be composed to go along with the action. Well, it, it, it's, um, it's incidental music. Either it? the it's, composer didn't pay attention to the director or the editor didn't pay attention to the composer. No, I, I totally agree. The, 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 the music that's blaring from the speakers bears no relation to the action on screen. It, they're, they're, they're total separate entities, basically. No, and the music um, never I mean, fucking stops. <laughs> you get the impression, don't you, um, that they'd hired Kef McCulloch and they told him, well, uh, you'll get paid for the music for a 90-minute production. Um, and once again, with youthful enthusiasm, he sat down and composed 90 minutes of music. Mm. Um, and they got the tapes or the dats back off him and they just hitched the dat player up to the final dub um, of the completed broadcast cut and just played the music without even once listening to see whether any of it was appropriate for what was happening on screen at the time. A, a, a curiosity, Doc. I don't mind the Kef McCulloch arrangement of the title music. It, it, it's far from my favourite, but, but I don't despise it. 
Um, you know, my, my beef is, is, is with his actual incidental music within the episodes themselves. There's a, limit, a, a freelance composer and a young freelance composer without a, without a vast body of work behind him is going to do what he's told. Yeah. Um, people who take jobs for money do what they're told, and I've got no problem with that. Um, I would be fascinated, for instance, to hear whether he had any rejected drafts of his mm. take on the theme tune. Um, I'd be interested to read if he had any planning diaries or notebooks about, well, you know, I was thinking about something like this for this bit. And I'd be fascinating to know how those meetings went down. I can't imagine, we assume, don't we, that he's had some training in music and some training in composition. Sure. I can't imagine somebody with those skills and that training thinking that that was good. Mm -hmm. those, those decisions were made by people who, who knew nothing about music. It, to me, it, 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 just, it just sounded like nobody cared about it. It really, it really gave the impression that just nobody gave a damn about that aspect of the production. It, it was so mind-bogglingly awful, you know, that there was nobody there with a hand on the tiller saying, you know, this actually, you know, this... This really matters, you know. This, this is maybe you know a third of the production in terms of what people take away from it, and it's, it's really important. So here's the interesting thing: if they just wanted to not care and save some money, and like we can't even be bothered about the music, the BBC has an enormous library of stock music which it owns mm. and can use for free. Um, somebody made the decision to take away some of the budget and hire a freelance composer, so it wasn't like people used to talk about, um, oh, it must be a union thing, they must have to use the BBC Orchestra, they must have to use the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, nothing like that. They went outside the organisation and they hired a self-employed composer. They spent money on that and they made the decision to do that. And when they decided to use it in the finished production, somebody with clout thought that it was good. I'm going to hit you now with eight notes in about four seconds. And I think you'll yeah. recognise it. Are you ready? If my voice is up to it. Do, 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 do. Um, that's the Omega Factor, is it not? It's, it's not the Omega Factor. It's from who? The internet hated you for a second then, mate. Oh, really? It, it's not the it's Omega from... Factor. It's, it's from Doctor Who. I'll do it one more time. I'll do it one more time. Do, 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 oh! Do, do, do. You got it? Yeah, it's um, the piece of music is called Space Adventures, <clears throat> um, and uh, it's normally used as the the Cybermen are coming music. Correct, that's it. So it's it's the Cybermen theme, effectively from the Trouton era, isn't it? Um, yes. And you know that that was stock music. That was free to the BBC. It's eight notes. It's four seconds long. It is better by a million thousand billion percent than anything in the Sylvester McCoy era. Um, if you're interested, um, I have a copy of the album that that comes from. I would always be interested in that, Doc, because I, I particularly love that uh, refrain. I came across it on an Exotica podcast um, about 14 years ago, um, and I was listening to it, and I thought, oh, my goodness, via mm -hmm. a completely independent roundabout source, um, that's um, the Cybermen are coming music. But yeah, absolutely. I like your title for that, Doc. The Cybermen are coming, basically. It's great. Yeah, the, the Cybermen are coming. Yeah, it's that's true. What it's called. No, you're correct. Uh, <coughs> people will tell you it's called, people will tell you 
called Space Adventures. They're mm-hmm. lying. It's they called liars. The, the Cybermen Are Coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, the BBC has at its disposal, um, I think, something like 4,500 hours of stock music, some of which was composed within the BBC, some of which has been licensed in perpetuity some of which the BBC has acquired the licenses for. And yeah, all of that stuff is in the basement. All of that stuff is free. Um, The other freelance composer on um, Sylvester McCoy era Doctor Who, Mark Ayres, um, went on to take the full-time job as the curator of that collection. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a marvellously self-effacing and humble thing. Mm for a composer to do, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know what, this ain't working out for me. This is maybe not where my talents are best used. Instead of trying to write my own stuff and maybe not being so great at it, what I'm going to do is I've got the chance to curate this enormous collection of huge stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah, good for him. Good for him. What's your, what's your next point, Doc? What do we think of the look of it? Because if I'm right, <clears throat> this is the point at which... Um, Doctor Who first began to use the, what in those days they would have called ultralight cameras, the um, the beta cam cameras. So these were things that um, you could pretty much, the whole kit could be operated between two people. Um, so one guy would have the camera on his shoulder and be the cinematographer, if you like, and the other guy would have a big backpack with a big battery and then around his neck, the videotape recorder, and then I think he would also hold the stick with the microphone on the end of it. So um, for the first time, instead of a, a camera being a, a crew-served weapon and operated by about four people, um, a video camera could be operated by, uh, um, by a, a fire team of two people. As an idea, I think it's great. Sadly, I think out of any format that I've ever seen used for broadcast television, Betacam is the one I like the least. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, when you move the camera too quickly, um, it has the effect of making movement very stuttery and very jarry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I know one reason directors like it. Well, I know two reasons. It enables you to get a lot more stuff done on location. Um, it works in a lot more different weathers than film does. And it enables you to make interiors and exteriors look you you can get the lighting right. You can make them look the same. Yeah, <clears throat> for sure. So I understand why directors want to have the same look for interiors and exteriors. And on Doctor Who, using film for both was hardly ever an option. Um, so when they have the chance to use this ultra lightweight video equipment, I can really understand why they want to use it. It solves a ton of problems for directors. Um, there is one problem with it, um, which is a pretty big problem considering it's a visual medium. It looks like cack. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't unduly uh, offended by the by the visuals, um, because my, you know my, my you know unfortunately my overall impression, my bias of the whole McCoy era is that it looks like shit. So it came as no surprise. Do you know what I mean? Um, it, it, it wasn't kind of like jarringly anachronistic compared to what was in my memory. It, it, it just was in keeping with exactly how I expected it to look. So, you know, no surprise there, yeah. basically. 
And it's another, it, it's yet another millstone that era has to carry around. You know, it's yet another liability it's lumbered with. Mm. Um, and I mean, if, if I thought I was kicking a puppy with the twin dilemma a little while ago, um, I'm actually starting to feel more and more and more personally bad um, saying anything bad about the Sylvester McCoy era at all. Because, I mean, bef- before I, I, I proffer criticism, um, I always try to put myself in the, the, the proxy position of someone saying to me, well, would you, could, could, could you have done any better then? Sure. Um, and honestly, with that amount of money, I could have done better than The Phantom Menace. With the amount of money that these people have got, which ain't much, um, and with not one, but all of these different millstones being hung around their necks and their feet being set in concrete yeah. over this thing and that thing all the time. I think it's a minor miracle they managed to get anything on telly at all. Yes, and that's why I didn't really think about the direction much because, you know, I, I think he was truly on kind of turd polishing duties, really. Um, so, you know, yeah. I, I did not expect much from him and, and nor did I receive it. A, a positive thing, though, I thought the, the costumes, um, particularly of the, of the Lecursians, I mean, they, they had the potential to be absolutely terrible. But actually, I thought they kind of just struck the right balance, that kind of cyberpunky, gothy, you know, kind of, kind of vibe that they were going for. I thought they looked okay. Then again, we get to the Tetraps, and, you know, they're just a bit fucking laughable, aren't they? You know, why give the Tetraps pot bellies? I suppose there's... Is it meant? Is it an attempt to make them look gluttonous? Yes, um, yeah, like full of blood. Is it an attempt to make yeah, them full of look... blood and flesh, effectively? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is it just an attempt to make them look gross? Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, are, are we into um, are we into fat shaming our alien monsters these days? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I've seen worse alien designs. You know, um, they're not great. I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen worse in Who, I've seen worse in Trek, Blake 7, B5, etc. You know, but, but, but it, it, just that curious kind of design choice to kind of give them a paunch. You know, it, it just makes yeah. them look a bit daft. It's weird, you know, um, how many monsters um, from the Sylvester McCoy era of Doctor Who look better when you see the props. Oh, yes. Um, I've been to. I, I went to a couple of exhibitions shortly after that, and they had a tetrap mask. They had a, 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 a what were the creatures called? The hemorrhoids or something? Um, the, the the blue things. Um, the hemorrhoids from few... Fenric. We're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when you get to see them, they've been lovingly crafted and had a ton of time and not a small amount of skill mm. and talent put mm. into them. Um, so you get this, this, this peculiar reverse, which is when you go to an exhibition and they've got props and costumes from the sixties or the seventies, um, they're laughable when you actually get to see them in real life Yeah, and you, you end up admiring the skill of the director for making look them, make make them look like anything except for some chicken wire and papier mache. Mm. Um, and then you get this massive reverse when you get to the late eighties that when you actually get up close to the tetrap head. And, you know, some model maker somewhere spent a really, really long time on that. It's almost fully functioningly animatronic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tetrap head has got wires and uh, pneumatic tubes and things, so it can actually change its facial expression. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
And, and we see that, um, don't we? In, 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 that, in that kind of cliffhanger, I think it's episode two, the cliffhanger, where the Doctor's kind of being menaced by a multitude of tetraps. Well, let's say three, you know. Um, and and, and we, but we do we, we do see <coughs> their kind of their, their features kind of shifting and and, and changing expression. There, they look pretty good because all you're looking at is their face. You know, it's when you get the full body shots that we get into problems. Yeah. I think. Um, so remind me, from my memory, and it was—it's only been a few days. The tetraps didn't really do anything, did they? I don't think so. I don't really know what purpose they served, other than to be kind of a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a menace at the end of that particular cliffhanger, and just you know, just a casual menace lurking in the background. I think the story would have functioned perfectly well without yeah. them. Well, yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's another example of spending too much money in a place where you could have really done with saving that money for something yeah. else. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I was gutted to see Donald Pickering and Wanda Bentham being squandered. The two main locations, okay. uh, the man, uh, the man one, the man one, and the woman one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both like Doctor Who veterans. Uh, they were both in the Faceless Ones. Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah, so they've been kicking around uh, for a while. That's also kind of borderline stunt casting. They, they, they hired sort of two fairly well-known people um, who viewers would have recognised. Um, and then and they did the same thing in Attack of the Cybermen a couple of years previous, a long time previously, um, and then covered them in really bad makeup so that nobody could really recognise them and they couldn't act very well. Yes, that was, uh, most notably, was Sarah Green, wasn't it? The, 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 the erstwhile children's TV presenter from Live and Kicking. Um, yeah, and um, one, of the, um, uh, one of the legendary female impersonators as well. Oh. I don't mean drag queen. Uh, I mean mm-hmm. one of the legendary lady impersonators. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- they, were, um, they were all famous people. Um, mm-hmm. Under those cheap marble masks. She's the one. I don't know her name, but she's the one that did Thatcher on Spitting Image. And she, that's, that's the lady you're talking about. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It, it, it does matter. It's um, not worth a fact check, but, but, but I think that's what we're talking about. Um, no, we, we'll, we'll have to look that up and correct ourselves next time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's this other sort of really odd habit that John Nathan Turner has of, of, of hiring relatively well-known people and then rendering them unrecognisable, which I suppose, if you like, is a way to, to go against accusations of stunt casting. Of course. You can't yeah. be accused of stunt casting when the people you hire aren't even recognisable. No, for sure. Yeah, I think we talked on a previous episode um, about the film Frank, where... Um, the director hired um, Michael Fassbender, you know, A-list Hollywood celeb, and then and then put him in in, in the massive Frank Sidebottom mask for the duration. You never saw Michael yeah. Fassbender's face once. And then the even more obvious one is um, hiring Elijah Wood for the remake of uh, Maniac. Oh, yes, we talked about that too, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's interesting. Any more points here, Doc, or are we about um, to wrap it up? What do you think? Well, here's the thing. I have not yet succeeded in my plan. I didn't enjoy watching Time of the Rally. Mm. But the things I didn't enjoy about it were the fact that it was merely a not very good Doctor Who story. Mm. It was a drab plot with an uninteresting villain with a silly plan and some running around in a quarry and an undeveloped alien race. There's nothing... Apart from the few minutes of staggering awfulness, 
um, there's nothing that makes it any worse than any other not very good Doctor Who story. No, look, I mean, for me, I just kind of, I just kind of looked at it, really. I just looked at it in the same way that I would look at a cupboard, you know, or, or you know, or a wardrobe door. Um, it, 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 it involved no emotion in me. Um, I won't remember it in a month's time. I'll, I'll, I'll probably never watch it again. Um, but no, but I didn't hate it. You know, if, if, if we don't do scores on this on this podcast, unlike the other one we do, but you know, I mean, it would it, be, be in like the bottom thirty percent, I think, if, if I were gonna if I were gonna chuck a score at it. But given that I expected this to be, you know, real kind of bottom of the barrel stuff, I suppose the best I can say is it wasn't as bad as I expected. So what we're beginning to think about is the um, the Sylvester McCoy, Sylvester McCoy's first season. Um, being an era of um, ideas which, whilst they might not have been good, at least they were new. Yeah. Execution which, whilst it might not always have been competent, was at least enthusiastic. Um, stuff that turned out not to be the future of Doctor Who, um, but was a far better candidate for being the future of Doctor Who than anything we'd sat through for the last two or three years. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very interesting, isn't it? Um, Any further thoughts, Doc, or are we done? I mean, um, I'm looking forward to seeing where my head adjustment plan takes me next, mm. for which, of course, we'll have to wait about three months. Um, but um, I suspect I'm going to encounter my first real challenge next time we meet the McCoy era. And then, remind me, Doc, what the next McCoy story is? That will be Parasite Towers. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 the disparity between the, the novelization and the execution on the screen. But we'll get to that, Doc, in due course. Um, okay. I think that brings us just about to the end of this show. I don't think we were too cruel, really. I think, I think we did extract some positivity amongst the, amongst the Maya. Um, so next time, please come along and join us when we'll be watching the one and only outing from Paul McGann, which is, of course, the movie, Doctor Who, the movie. I don't, I don't know what else to call it, Doc. I, I don't think it's got an official title. Um, but the pilot, the movie, um, I don't even know. You know um, Do Doctor Who attempts to crack I'm, America. I'm, I'm looking forward to that quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I am actually. You know, I think I've only seen that two or three times. I have such good memories of the first time I watched it. Because um, it was a beautiful summer evening. Um, and, um, in fact, I do believe you were there. Yes, certainly. certainly uh, quite was. a few of my friends piled... Yeah, quite a few of my friends piled down the pub, had a couple beers, and then something happened, which I'd always hoped to witness... In my lifetime, um, I we, we witnessed the Quatermass effect, um, and the pub emptied because everyone was going home to watch Doctor Who. Yeah, how about that? How about that? And I think the same thing happened in 2005, but we'll come to that when we come to it, I guess. Doc, it's been a pleasure. That will be in two. Yes, it has. See yeah. you later. You take care. See you next time. Bye-bye.